This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist. People greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're building on the theme of querying the Bible, we're starting a two-part conversation about the writer Deborah Miranda's tribal memoir, Bad Indians. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird, And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. It's been a little while, and I'm so glad to be back in a podcast booth with you. Me too. Me too. I've been looking forward to this conversation and the next one to follow very much. This is a this yeah. is good stuff. It is good stuff. Yeah. Listeners, so Jennifer and I both just read Deborah Miranda's memoir, Bad Indians. And Bad Indians is, she draws the title from a newspaper article that she found about an ancestor of hers. This memoir, I would say, is put together like a patchwork quilt. She does lots and lots of genealogical research. She finds newspaper articles. She finds old letters. She finds old journal entries. So she generates a lot of her own text, her own memoir, and she gathers a lot of text from other places. So a little bit later in the conversation, I'll read you the article where the title comes from, but that's what Bad Indians is. And Jennifer, how are you processing this book? Oh my goodness. I think it's probably a good thing that it's not my first time encountering some honesty, some honest family storytelling, some honest history about this country storytelling, or I'd probably be a puddle. I'd be a mess. I'd be a mess emotionally, I think. It's pretty intense. I think when we were, you and I were exchanging it, you made a comment about being very courageous writing mm -hmm. on her part. Yes. And yes. there's one thing before we jump into the content I wanted to share with you and our listeners. I happened to receive a shipment of a couple books that were on sale that I was excited to just do some other type of reading, if I could, if I can find time. And one of the books that I picked up is called Where Paralytics Walk and the Blind See. Mm. The subtitle is Stories of Sickness and Disability at the Juncture of Worlds. And it's by Mary Dunn, D-U-N-N. -N. And I figured it would be a good, good venture into some more philosophical and thoughtful and different, different content than what I do as a biblical scholar. I'll just put it that way. And so I was opening the book and the opening after the dedication, she has a poem or prose, a poem or prose, whatever you want to call it. I suppose it's a poem. 
and it's by Lois Beardsley. And the title is Fiction Versus Nonfiction. And when I started to read this, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. This is what I want to share at the beginning of today's episode. So here we go. Fiction versus nonfiction. I've noticed that at the Library of Congress, they have a hard time with the concept of nonfiction and fiction merging, as though it could be any different. So librarians dutifully tuck history books into the realm of nonfiction, as they have been so carefully taught, preserving the myths of our culture, the ones we have learned all our lives, at universities, at public schools, in daycare, in front of the TV, at the kitchen table, in our mother's bellies. Myths about dominance and superiority, and who owns what, and who owns whom. Dignity, respect, good jobs, continence. And I just thought, that's what she's talking about. I mean, she's talking about a lot of things, but she is resonating with what I perceive Miranda to be doing for us, shaking up what we know about yes. a certain group of people, a certain history of this country, all kinds of things. And I just thought, wow, that's delightful. Yeah, it is. One of the things I really like about the Beardsley poem that you just read, and listeners, I'm hearing it for the first time also just now. One of the things I really love about that is the great variety of delivery systems for myth that the poem covers. And one word that covers both fiction and nonfiction is narrative. We learn through narrative and we absorb myth through narrative and we absorb ideology through narrative. And she lists so many, and specifically in connection with bad Indians, I'm thinking about how Carmel Mission Mm -hmm. is a tourist destination. And now, I mean, I would love for you to talk about how it's changed as your nephews were growing up, because your nephews are from California, and there's been some change in the way Carmel Mission is presented in the way that units on missions are handled in grade school. But one of the things Miranda talks about is how missions are a place of terror for Native Americans. And for some other Americans, they're a place where you go, you take the kids and you get ice cream, or you order a kit on Amazon and have your kid build a mission in school or build a mission in a little school box. Like it's a super fun thing. And that's a delivery system for a certain narrative of American history. There are just so many ways that we absorb that stuff. Exactly. The image of creating a mission as part of your history, as a part of the history for fourth graders, nine-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. I asked my, I did ask my sister-in-law about that. And she said that they did change dramatically from her oldest, who is now in his late 20s. They did. They made a they made a mission from scratch and also asked that the student and any family members go visit one to see it for themselves. 
The second child, I can't remember specifically what she said. It was it was moving into the phase of these kits being available so that you didn't have to do it from scratch and it would look so much better and absolutely missing the whole point of making something. But then also people saying, and this isn't fair because not everyone can afford a kit, and which is also, again, not the point at all of... <laughs> I mean, so many, right. so many layers here. And then by the time her third son, and so they were three years apart, so mm-hmm. by the time of her third son, they weren't doing it at all. And she, she mentioned that the signs, the signage at the, the mission she, that is closest to them are quite honest. I had kind of, you know, chuckled. I was like, I'm sure the signs are downplaying everything. She said, no, they're actually quite honest, which was refreshing on some level, but they are still a tourist destination, right? I mean, it's still in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the way you can visit plantations and you can see quarters where enslaved individuals yeah. slept and, and ate and lived, which is more honest than just walking through the big house and not mentioning enslaved people much. Which right also has has changed. And I want to say, just because I don't want to assume everyone knows what Deborah Miranda and what we are talking about, that when we're talking about a mission, we're talking about a mission school and also a, a labor camp, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. And the idea is that Christian missionaries would either recruit or kidnap or coerce in a variety of ways, or attract, I don't want to leave that out, that happened too, but round up Indians to live at the mission, remove children from loving families, and raise them in schools, and corporal punishment and incarceration was a part of the way that Indians were treated at these schools. One of the things that's most haunting for me in Bad Indians, Jennifer, are those pictures of the weapons that were used to punish Indians for, say, using their native language or uh, singing in the wrong language or not working hard enough or looking lazy. And I think in all situations where power, there's a huge power imbalance and people are able to hurt other people with impunity, something very sadistic takes over. And in this book, there were images of a cat of nine tails, of a cudgel, of a contraption to press thumb screws to press people's thumbs. So those are very terrifying, but I also think very important things to see, because when we think about mission schools or missionization or missions, we don't always think of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think even the extent of the number of missions was news to me. I mean, it's not something I've taken time to look into, to be quite honest. And so for me, this was, I was learning a lot. I didn't know about, for instance, the, the numbers, right? That prior to missionization, prior to the missions, we're talking about around a million people And by the end of missions, which is what, about 50 years, 70 years, yeah. something like that? Yeah. That population of Native peoples of various backgrounds, but people living in what is considered California today, went from 1 million to 20,000. That is as close as you can come to a genocide without it being a full genocide, right? I mean, it's, 
not a thing I've yeah. heard talked about. I hear about other Native traditions, for, for sure. So for me, this was page after page of, huh, I just didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I had a very similar reaction. Listen, I would really like to read a little bit from the article where Deborah Miranda gets her title from. And then I just wanted to ask you a bit about this good-bad dichotomy, yeah. good Indian, bad Indian, and how it derives from biblical texts about parenting, about kids, other kinds of texts, the idea of a barbarian or a savage, like how that all arises. So folks, the headline of the newspaper article that Deborah Miranda takes a title from the headline is this, Bad Indian Goes on Rampage at Santa Inez. And this is a story about one of Miranda's ancestors. It's from August 3, 1909. It's in the Los Angeles Times. Juan Miranda, a bad Indian on the reservation at Santa Inez, got on a rampage today, thanks to some fire water and Constable Knight and Game Warden Crab went over to reconnoiter. As the two officers approached Miranda's cabin, the Indian came out of the door with a 44 caliber Winchester, which he leveled at them. Next, there emerged from the cabin the Indian's daughter with a six-shooter. She was followed by the man's wife, who had chosen a double-barreled shotgun for hers. And then it goes on. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing that I'm just noting is that the the voice of the newspaper reporter just casts this Indian as good Indian, bad Indian, bad Indian goes on a rampage. And there's no sense of, okay, what's bothering these folks? What's happening? Um, exactly. Maybe, maybe, maybe genocide had something to do with it, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe abuse and punishment, beating, whipping, whatever that might've had something right? to do with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to read from her introduction on that note, mm -hmm. um, some of the comments and lines, just the lines or the, that she just kind of drops in there are really powerful, but there are a couple pieces here. One is when she talks about, on page 16 of the introduction, story is the most powerful force in the world. Mm. In our world, mm -hmm. maybe in all worlds, story is culture which is what yeah. you were getting at, talking about the way we inherit our identities through narrative. And then she says in the next paragraph, and I, was, I took this in, I read it several times, I've reflected on how pervasive this particular set of characterizations is. She says in the next paragraph, all my life I have heard only one story about California Indians. Godless, dirty, stupid, primitive, ugly, passive, drunken, immoral, lazy, weak-willed people who might make good workers if properly trained and motivated. What kind of a story is that to grow up with? And then she said the story of the missionization of California. And I just, you know, I reflect on the number of ways I've seen similar <laughs> characterizations thrown at lots of different people over, over the centuries, you know, on various parts of the world. But I know of, of it happening on this continent, directed at lots of different people. 
throughout the eras of slavery, but also when new when waves of people would come from Europe to this country and how you justify denying them some form of human right is by labeling them with some of these ideas. But the whole taken together is quite overwhelming and just a terrible, it's a terrible depiction. Yeah, I agree. And so, so unjust. So... Yeah. Uh, another one of the stories I think that um, many of us in the United States grow up with and, and, and in many places is the idea that there are two kinds of kids. There are good kids and there are bad kids. And in the mission schools, uh, I mean, what, what I would like to read next is it's writing by priests and the priests are describing the way Indians think about their children. And the priests think that it's really weird that the Indians don't hit their children. Mm -hmm. And they consider it a sign of improvement in the Indians' character if they will begin to beat their children. And after I just read these passages, I'd like to talk a bit about where this idea comes from. I notice you gathered a couple of passages from Proverbs, and I thought we'd, we'd look at those, but take a listen to this. So a priest from Mission San Miguel writes about the indigenous people who are involved with Mission San Miguel. The priest writes, toward their children, they show an extravagant love whom they do not chastise nor have they ever chastised them, but allow them to do whatever they please. We know now, however, that some are beginning to chastise and educate them due to the instructions they are receiving. So in other words, priests are teaching indigenous people to beat their children because beating children is not a natural part of the culture. There's also a piece of writing from a priest from Mission San Antonio again, about indigenous people, they likewise love their children. In fact, it can be said that this love is so excessive that it is a vice for the majority lack the courage to punish their children's wrongdoings and knavery. And then the last one I'll read is from Mission San Antonio. The priest writes, some parents who are a little better instructed punish their children as they deserve while others denounce them to the missionary fathers. So this is very disturbing to me because the story goes, the story that the Bible has helped build to some extent, the story goes that children can really be bad and the way to correct them, the way to correct their behavior is, is, to, is to beat them. And this is a major part of many parts of Christian culture, and it's very disturbing. Let's talk about it when we come back. Why don't we go to a break, and then we'll look at the passages from Proverbs and some other things when we come back. All right, listeners, take a listen to this, a word from our sponsors. You know, Jean, before we get into the specific passages, I wanted to comment that what you just read, you know, about the way the priests were perceiving the interactions among these family members, these families, and how they praised 
when parents, most likely more often the fathers, would begin to punish their children in response. I'm, I just kept thinking about what, what Deborah Miranda was saying about her own family yeah. several generations out and what was both dished out to children at the missions, and therefore they grew up and learned to dish it out to theirs, but, yeah. but also just that culture, that idea. So the example that was set for them, the difficulty, the many layers of trauma and oppression that they were living in the midst of and therefore and didn't necessarily have healthy outlets for ways to, to process because it's a level that's not really processable. Right. But, I, you know, I just I don't know which is to blame for a parent who lashes out at their children after three generations of this. Right? Sure. We know. Right. We know that trauma is actually passed along genetically yes. to a certain yes. extent. And so people are living it out somehow. And it's just, you know, I'm tr I'm trying not to feel it too much because I'm I, I'd be on the verge of tears. Right. I'm yeah. like, this is. I mean, oh, poor you, Jen. But, you know, I'm just trying to say this is this isn't just throwaway lines. This is this is impacting people Gen for, you know, for multiple generations just because it's happening to this group of people. I don't know if I'm saying that well, but. Yeah, the intergenerational trauma is a huge part of the post-traumatic stress that right. Miranda is trying to detail here. And right. she takes care to make sure that readers do understand how painful child abuse is. And also, not just if you're the child being abused, but if right. you have a beloved brother that you are watching be abused is as traumatic as receiving the blows yourself. It's both witnessing trauma yep. and experiencing trauma. They are equally traumatic. People get get really damaged. Right. She wasn't able to protect him fully yeah. or however yeah. you want to look at that. So you said you wanted to talk briefly and we could, unfortunately, this, this section could take a long time. So I've tried to highlight, hone in on what I think are some of the predominant biblical passages that do underscore or justify, and I use justify, you know, lightly here um, in air quotes, perhaps, but there are biblical passages and themes throughout the Bible that I think are relevant. So you did. You pointed to Proverbs, which I think is, I think many people have probably heard some of these without even knowing it was biblical. Such as Proverbs 13, the opening of Proverbs 13. A wise child loves discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And we could have a conversation about what do they mean in this context about the, that word discipline, if mm -hmm. that means self-control or if that means being reproved. But however you want to couch that. And then at the end of that same chapter, those who spare the rod hate their children, but those who love them are diligent to discipline them. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Jane, this is one of those things where I having spent a lot of time in evangelical circles, I have known lots of Christian parents mm -hmm. who, who saw their duty mm -hmm. to be physically, corporally, but to punish their children very yeah. stringently because yeah. they loved them, right? This 
awful paradigm. Anyway, so there are just a few in Proverbs that support this. But what I, what I also want to say briefly about Proverbs is it is aimed at children. And, it, and what that, part of what that means is it, has, it functions on binaries or dichotomies. It's mm-hmm. not a nuanced presentation of human behavior or maturing or any of that because children need black and white, you know, clear right and wrong that we then build upon when you're taught ethics when you get older, <laughs> if you are. But so there, there are things like the Proverbs. And then there are, you know, I mean, I'm, gosh, there's so much I would like to critique here. So I was, I'm trying to focus. But, you know, I wanted to highlight that even in between these two verses that are about children and, and um, parenting, there are a slew of other claims and lines and observations about life that do a lot of name calling, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a consistent good, bad, lazy, productive. Yeah. And they teach people to think this way. And even when you get to become an adult, if you're still reading these scriptures, you're not necessarily given a chance to think beyond this. And it leads to a tendency to essentialize people. And what I mean by that is to call someone, for instance, a liar instead of to say, wow, that person just said a lie. Like there's a difference there in terms of how you are cognitively processing your own relationship to that person, yeah. much less how you then perceive the family they're from or the you know, people they associate with. So there's a lot going on, in my opinion, in the what is what people are being taught category yes. about behaviors. And then you get there's a second set of passages that I think are important. And it's all the times that the God of the Hebrews and the Israelites essentially yells at them mm-hmm. through the prophets, judging and condemning them, threatening to kill them or have them handed over to their enemy all the time. Like it just, it happens over and over throughout the prophets. And God calls them names often as of a sexual, female sexualized variety, mm-hmm. another topic for another day, and then turns on a dime and claims to love them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see, we see this, my wrath at you is justified because I love you and I care for you and I want you to be my people. And it's not... It is not okay, but it is prevalent in the prophets. And many people are taught to accept this and find out a way to make it okay because God is beyond us or, well, God's love, you know, he wants the love or forgiveness. And and it justifies all of this horrific means that gets us to that. And so from my perspective, then people are, even when the in-group are being taught to accept harsh punishments. And then the third group of passages that come to my mind. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, where do we stop, right? Are those found in two other places? The first is when we look at the, the passages related to the, the promises given to Abraham, right? And this, the people already living in the land he's promised are characterized as savage or heathen and worthy of destruction. I've heard, I've had students say this to me over and over and over and over Mm. again, that the Canaanites deserve to be punished or killed because they weren't worshiping my God. I mean, they, Mm. I'm getting a little worked up. People are taught this really well. And it's a, it's a moral and ethical part of my job to invite people to reconsider that claim and that belief. It's deeply embedded for some people. They, many people have a hard time seeing my point because they are so committed to worshiping the right God is what is most important in all of life. You know, so, so 
that piece for what we see in the missions, right, is very, very present and well-established in the way that I look at so many parts of the biblical canon. And then what is kind of the final piece, but it's also perhaps in some ways the most important because it comes from Paul. And Paul is the guy who gives us a lot of the language for talking about this church or these communities called, you know, ecclesia that become the church, you know, a few decades after him. But his language is often very stark, dualistic language, good, bad. He does a lot of essentializing, all kinds of things, right? And I pulled out two different passages. I hope it's not too much. Is it too much to read all of it or maybe just one? Well, I don't know. I think, I think that you should read, but I want to <laughs> jump in and say. Okay, I'm that, sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I, I love it when you get worked up. So, yeah, just uh, let it rip, man. <laughs> Um, woman, sorry, um, <laughs> my sexist language, but this is where I feel it would be incredibly helpful if readers would have more nuance about what the Bible is, if it could yeah. be thought of as a collection of texts that documents an ancient Hebrew human person's ideas about God rather than the word of God or God as God is. Like we've talked about this before on the podcast where the representation of something is not the same thing as the something. So that biblical language is going, it's attempting to picture God. And of course, it's completely filtered and mediated by human ideas. And as humans, we are like, we just think really weirdly. We're, we're primates. We have hierarchies and some are higher than others and some are lower than others. And there's in-groups and out-groups and that's all primate behavior. And that gets mapped onto concepts of the divine. And it does result in some of these really grotesque theologies, bad theology. Um, and I also, when you were speaking, I was thinking about how different your students are from my <laughs> students, because when we, the students mm -hmm. you've encountered, you've tended to encounter more students who do come from religious backgrounds. And so they've really been indoctrinated with these God concepts yes. or this concept yes. of the Canaanite. And I hear that idea from time to time in the evangelical community where I worship ideas about, well, I mean, Canaan, of course they had to be wiped out because they, you know, they disobeyed God or whatever, just like a very pat understanding of the story without any real attention to context. And so I hear that from time to time, but not among the students I teach, because I teach in a very liberal, secular institution. And by and large, when I'm studying biblical texts, my students are absolutely appalled by God's behavior. And what they say is that really sounds like an abusive relationship where the abuser says something awful, does something awful, but there's like a Stockholm syndrome. This is what some of my students have said. It's, it's as though the ancient Hebrew people had Stockholm syndrome and they couldn't like liberate their themselves from their abusive captor. And so I actually wind up having the opposite task, which is not, I wouldn't call it a moral or ethical task, but it's a literary task to say, but it's the same thing. It's like, hey, look, because you read a story like this doesn't mean that God is like this. 
I know some of us are theists, some of us are not. I'm a theist. And so I feel a stake like in this idea that like don't portray <laughs> God as this punishing terror because that's not mm-hmm. what God is. I, and, and so I for that reason, it's very important to me to remind people that all story, let's go back to story. Story is a mediating element, right? If you're telling a story, that story is mediating between the thing you're telling the story about and you know the way you think about that thing. So <laughs> it's helpful if there could be some layers, uh, if people could understand that there are many layers of mediation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. here between, you know, the divine and stories about the divine. It's not the same thing. Absolutely. And Jean, I I will just say, I remember the first time I had a student when I was at a Methodist-affiliated institution, right? I had a student in one of my intro classes for the first time say, this is an abusive relationship. Mm. And he was pointing to God and what God is saying to the Israelites. And I had spent a lot of time thinking through that in relation to Newer Testament ideas, but mm-hmm. he was the first student I had to say it mm-hmm. so clearly. And I yeah. just thought, oh, I, I've got to attend to that, don't I? I can't mm-hmm. just, I need to name it because when he named it, it was different for me, even though I kind of had the thoughts. I'd not just named it so strictly and, and succinctly. And I realized that it needed, he needed it to be aired. Therefore, there were others in the room who would need that to be aired and named instead of swept under the carpet and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, I do like that we come from, we have different audiences or yes. different kinds of students. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. So tell us, you, you had another passage that you wanted to look at. There's one other or one or two others. And I, when I think of the language that, that Paul uses, that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'll focus on that for a second. And it's just, just this, again, many, I know and believe that many people mean well, right, when, we, when they make these kinds of claims. Um, but it hasn't always played out in the best way for people on the receiving end. So, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 8, so deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have been very dear to us. So that's meant to be this, you can trust us, we love you, we care for you, all those kinds of things. But then in the next chapter, the writer talks about the judgment of those who do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He talks about their behaviors and beliefs, and they are characterized in this way. They are people who believe signs and wonders. They are people who refuse to love the truth and thereby be saved. These people are to be condemned. There is an urgency in these words that compels many Christians to want to save these so-called heathens, right, from eternal destruction and damnation. And historically speaking, this urgency gets passed along, and so does the judgment of Mm. other people, which is then mutated into anger and hatred for them because they're not listening or getting on board. And that's what we see play out throughout the centuries between Christians and Jews, by the way, but sticking to the current topic. Sure. 
especially when these other people do not want to give in to what is being presented or forced upon them by these colonizing people. And that is what we, so, we see over and over uh, Deborah Memoranda presenting to us in yeah. various ways that how dare they, right? Her ancestors, her, the people she is from, trying to survive, trying to resist, being forced into X, Y, and Z. So to me, there is a lot of biblical fodder for what we've seen play out over the centuries. There sure is. Um, I think where I'd like to, let, let's start wrapping up. And I think where I'd like to take it and how maybe we could close is to think about one thing that really interests me about Miranda's writing and in particular the novena that she composes. Mm -hmm. And for listeners, um, so I was raised Catholic. A novena is a very ancient church tradition of prayer where you recite a prayer for either every day for nine days or every week for nine weeks, but it's it's nine. The novena is nine prayers. And one of the things that really interests me about Miranda's novena, and this is true about a lot of Indian, Native American uh, work, Indian work, um, is that a lot of it engages really directly with Christian tradition as a way to heal from the ravages of Christian tradition. And there are Native Christians. I don't want to suggest that there are no Native Christians or that for Native peoples who do adopt and adapt Christianity, that it's somehow not an authentic Indian identity. I don't think that. I understand that 10 to 15 percent of Native peoples identify as Christian. And for some of them, they, you know, Christianity has been in their family for generations. So I just want to add that caveat. Uh, but I also want to point out that for a number of Native American writers who do not adopt and adapt Christianity, for some, rejecting it very forcefully is the best way to stay healthy. And even if they do not identify as Christian, so many Native writers use Christian forms as a way to heal from religious trauma. And I think this novena is one of them. So it's a Christian form adapted to Indian rhetorical purposes. And we don't have time to read it all, but I thought maybe I'd read just one or two stanzas. So folks, um, this is called, this is a poem. Uh, Miranda's book has prose sections and also poetry in it and a lot of other things. And this is a poem called Novena to Bad Indians. And it starts with a quote from General Philip Sheridan, who ran a mission school. And the quote is very famous. Sheridan said, the only good Indians I ever knew were dead. So this is a prayer for day one of the Novena to Bad Indians. Indian outlaws, banditos, renegades, rebels, lazy Indians, sinful Indians, you gamblers who squatted out behind the church instead of assuming the missionary position behind the plow. Oh, lusty Indians who tied bones to sheets thrown out of those women's monherio, climbed up that swaying skeleton of salvation and made unsanctified love all night. Oh, women who tossed down those sheets, hear my prayer. Let me also hey, read. 
Oh, are, you, are you, I was going to say, I want to <laughs> read the day two. I mean, I'm like, this is just so good. You sure, know, sure. like it's so Let's powerful. Read day two, but I definitely also, I want to read day six and I want to read day nine. So we'll have, how, okay. about, how about we do the four? Okay. You want right. to read day two? Go for it. Sure. Yeah. Day two. Hail troublemakers, horse thieves, fornicators. I implore you, polygamists, dear dancers, idol worshipers. Chasers of loose women, heathens who caroused in the hills, stole wine from the sacristy, graffitied Indian designs on the church wall, told coyote stories instead of practicing catechism, torched mission wheat fields, set fire to tool roofs, ran away, were captured, flogged, put in stocks or irons, ran away again. Help me. Suffer me in this hour of loss. Thank you. That's be- that's beautiful. I, I just, it's it's funny too. Like I I'm picking up on the humor, but those, the prayerful parts at the very end, I I find very, very moving. Mm-hmm. Me too. So let me go right to day nine, since I know we're running out of time. Oh, unholy pagans who refused to convert. O pagans who converted, O pagans who recanted, O converts who survived, hear our supplication. Make us in your image, grant us your pride. Ancestors, illuminate the dark civilization we endure. Teach us to love, untamed. Inspire us to break rules. Remind us of your brutal wisdom learned so dearly. Even dead Indians are never good enough. Sober. And I think that is the word to wrap up this episode on. What do you think, Jean? I think so. Yeah, very, very sober. Yeah. But yeah. next time, we're, Thank you, yeah, we're going to pick this yeah. up and do some more engagement with what, yeah. with what Miranda has provided us. Yeah, we're coming back to Miranda. Yeah. So see you next time, Thank listeners. You. See you next time. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.